All right. Well, let's get back to these phone lines. It's going to be Jim and Tom, and I'll get you a couple more names in just a minute. But uh, good morning, Jim. Good morning. Morning, sir. I have a question about the exposing the root flare. What exactly is the problem there? Is it oxygen or what? You mean why do you do it? Yes. It is in part, it is oxygen. It is also damage which has been done to the tree trunk, so to speak. If we took a cross-section of a tree trunk just underneath the bark, there is a very critical layer called phloem, P-H-L-O-E-M, phloem tissue that uh, transports nutrients from the top of the tree down to the root system of the tree. The the trunk of the tree above the soil is not waterproof the way the roots and the portion under the soil are. Those cells are full of lignans and pectins and things that uh, are used to having wet soil around them. Above the ground, those materials are not present. The bark slowly rots. Uh, the phloem starly, slowly begins to rot. And when that layer is cut off, all of a sudden the roots have no uh, no source of energy, no source of nutrients, and the tree folds up and dies overnight. Now, there are plants which, you know, have a different physical arrangement of things, true palms and cycads, uh, or what we call monocots, uh, their, their tissues are differently arranged within the stem. Let's just leave it at that. And it doesn't really hurt to bury them deeper, but, uh, uh, woody trees, woody shrubs, things like that. Um, if they stay buried, it's a kiss of death. Okay, so that root flare is actually part of the trunk. Yes, sir. Than the, than yeah, and that's what I've always always said. It's, I, I think the term root flare is really stupid. They ought to be calling it the trunk flare. <laughs> and yeah. It's kind of like George Garland and all his routine about the hot water heater. It doesn't heat hot water. It heats cold water, but it's just it's a, it's a misnomer, and a trunk flare would be a much more appropriate term. Okay, you're seeing in especially all these high-end neighborhoods, they've already ringed all the trees with mulch. Uh-huh. What, is that good or bad? Bad. That's what I thought. Yeah, and that's that's a stu- that's a, one of those stupid Houston habits. Yes. And mulch is good out over the surface of the soil, uh, but you don't pile it up against the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it just it it just appalls me. And uh, uh, there are some good landscape companies out there, but I always jokingly say all you got to all you need is a pickup truck and a plastic sign, and all of a sudden you're a landscaper and an expert. And the lack of knowledge is very apparent in a lot of the things you see around. And that mulch piled up against the tree trunks is one of them. It seems like I read that it would attract insects into the trunk. It will do that as well. Yeah. It just weakens a tree. We we had a great lecture over at our nursery uh, last Saturday. Our friend David Vaughn, who's probably the best arborist that I've ever known in my life, uh, gave a long talk, and he spent a lot of time talking about it. And he was saying that virtually every time somebody says, my tree just died overnight, it was fine, and then it just suddenly died, that's the thing that is caused by that. It doesn't give you any warning. By the time you see the damage that this burying of the trunk has caused, the tree's already mostly dead, and it probably, you know, it, it's hard to reverse if it stayed that way too long. So uh, I don't understand why more people are not aware of the problem. I can tell you how it happens because of uh, the way these trees, uh, the trees are grown at the big wholesale growers. They went from paying their their labor by the hour they started paying them by the tree, by the piece. So the more 
the more plants a person could pot up, the more they got paid. So they weren't careful about doing it anymore. They just jam it in that pot, dump a bunch of soil on and move to the next plant. And I'd say probably 95% or more of the trees and shrubs coming out of the wholesale growers these days come to you buried too deeply in the soil. And there are a lot of these dummies out there planting trees that think, oh, I'm just going to plant it a little deeper and put that soil in because it's going to prop it up better. And you just Killing the trees. I'll, I'll get down off my soapbox now. <laughs> it's, uh, but it is a very, very serious problem in landscapes today. Well, I guess I picked up a bad habit from my dad. He would dig a 36-inch diameter hole, plant a one-inch diameter tree three inches too deep, but not fill the dirt <laughs> in to make a well to water in. Mm-hmm. And then eventually when that tree gets, you know, two to three feet in diameter, that has already kind of already filled in yeah. just from nature. So. It washes in. But, but yeah. in the day that your dad was doing it, he was probably getting his trees bare root or bald and burlapped and, or maybe yeah. trees that were properly planted. Uh, nowadays, if you did the same thing, that tree in the pot is already three inches too deep. You put it three inches further down, and now we've got a six-inch problem instead of just a three-inch problem. Yeah. So it's uh, we, we actually recommend that people plant things slightly above grade we'd like to see that plant planted too high in the soil much more than we'd like to see it planted too low now if you want to take that mulch and make yourself a nice ring of it you know maybe 12 inches out from the trunk it's a great way to create a little reservoir there that can hold the water uh that will make you know soaking that tree especially in its early days a little bit easier but uh that's the way you do it not by not by planting it in a basin okay one other quick question. Is a, a rose a rose a rose for a fertilizer? Absolutely. Okay. And what's your best bet on fertilizing roses? Um, just about any good organic fertilizer will do. I've always been very fond of a product that a company called Maestro Grove made that is called Rose Glow. Um, we actually had them take it and improve it. We have our own proprietary brand that Gary came up with. We call it Color Essentials, but it's just improved rose glow. So if you're going to go out and buy a rose fertilizer, I think that's the best one. But roses really aren't that picky. Uh, you can use any good organic fertilizer out there, and then maybe add a little bit of Epsom salts. That's one thing that the roses really seem to do like, that extra magnesium. But uh, if you use nothing more than just a good basic organic fertilizer, whether it's Nature's Creation or Medina or Maestro Grow or whosoever you use, Espoma, your roses are going to do beautifully. My wife thinks peat moss should be used around them. Is just that- Teller compost is a much, much better product than peat moss. Peat moss is antimicrobial. Peat moss is not a renewable resource. There are a lot of negatives about peat moss, and again, that's something our parents and grandparents did. But we're learning more and more that it's the microbes in the soil that keep our plants healthy and growing well. Peat moss is antimicrobial. That's why you could use it. uh, I mean, I went to Ireland a few years ago. They were pulling out of some of their peat bogs. Uh, I saw a chunk of butter they said was probably 150 years old, and it would look just like the day it had been churned. I saw the head of a red stag deer, which has been extinct for 5,000 years, but it was perfectly preserved in that peat bog. That's how antimicrobial it is, and that's not the situation we want to be creating for our plant roots. Okay, well, I'll just save it for embalming myself. When I pass, <laughs> if you want your, your remains to be mummified, that would be <laughs> that. I mean, uh, that's exactly what it would do. <laughs> All right. 
Well, listen, Bob, I appreciate your show and your time. Thank it's you. always a pleasure, Jim. Have a great weekend. Thank Bye-bye. you, sir. Goodbye. All right, let's see here. Tom is up next. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good. How about yourself? Oh, doing real well. Good. I planted about a month ago a silver maple tree about two inches in diameter. I'm sorry. And uh, <laughs> they were out of my Mexican sycamore that I wanted to plant. Yeah. And and so I, I planted it, and um, I, I planted it about a, a half inch above the ground because of the the same discussion you just had about the uh, right. root, yeah. root flare. Uh-huh. And when I when I went to try to expose to make sure that that root flare was up as, as high as it could be, the the root ball itself was so tightly wound mm-hmm. that I couldn't I couldn't really pull it away, pull it away, pull it away. So I just, you know, again, took it out of the the container, planted it, um, and then I've been watering it ever since, right? And so my question is, do I need to Number one, worry about the, the root flare. And then two, what's the best way to fertilize that tree going forward? Well, you do need to worry about the root flare, and you really need just to get in there with pruning shears or um, a hay hook or whatever you can use. All of that little tightly wound material, you actually described it better than I could. That is not good for the tree, but the tree, having stayed buried in that container for probably a couple of years before you got it, it's put all these little fine fibrous roots up above where the root flare should be, and you will not hurt the tree by pruning those away and cutting them back, pulling everything away, and you need to get do that until you get down to uh, where the root flare is. Otherwise, you're definitely shortening the life of that tree. Now, what what part of town do you live in, Tom? In um, north north central San Antonio. You have deep soil or shallow soil? Shallow soil. Well, I, I my old friend Alton Grimm taught me a long time ago. There's no such thing as a good plant or a bad plant. All plants have some good characteristics and some bad characteristics. Silver maple is not a quality tree. I don't I don't know any way to soften that blow. It's a crappy tree, and I don't think they should be sold here. They'll be beautiful for about 5 to 10 years, and then they start having extreme chlorosis problems. And, again, I learned so much from uh, my friend and mentor, Alton Grimm, who sadly passed away a, about a little over a year ago. But every time I would ask Alton about a, a new tree or something like that, he'd say, have you ever seen a big one? Have you ever seen how many of them do you see growing around? And I would define you to defy you to find very much in the way of silver maples growing anywhere in the area, and that's because they just don't live very long for the most part. Now, I guess I could, and you sound like you have a sense of humor, so I'm teasing you a little bit, but at least hopefully by the time this tree dies, you'll be able to find a Mexican sycamore and plant the tree that I wish you'd been able to find in the first place. But but silver maple is, is just plain and simply not a good long-term tree, but it's going to be pretty for the next five to ten years. As far as fertilizing it, just use the same stuff use on your grass just any good basic organic fertilizer and keep it well mulched probably add some magic sand or green sand periodically that will you know delay the onset of its problems but eventually that tree is going to start getting its roots down into the poor caliche soils and all and um, and let's just say that long term, I, I tell you, I would go somewhere near that spot in your yard, and I'd plant a different tree to take over when that when that silver maple gives up on you. 
Got it. And then if, if for some reason it does get sick quickly, should I where when or when do Mexican sycamores start to show up in nurseries? Because I could not find one. Well, I, we've got them. Um, I okay. imagine Fanix has them. They're just see. Here's the problem with the Mexican sycamore. It grows so quickly that the big wholesalers that we used to buy five and fifteen gallon trees from, which is the size that you or I can transplant, they just started sticking them all in thirty and ninety gallon containers, which weigh five hundred pounds, and you can't move them without a bobcat. And right. so they're just trying to get as much money out of them. We're actually having to go quite a long way, and they're still difficult to find. But they're not the only good tree. They're just the fastest-growing tree out there. But a Monterey oak, which is not get oak wilt, is going to be a, another real good choice. A cedar elm might be a good choice. A bur oak could be a good choice. There, there are lots of other trees out there. Uh, and, and like I say, the best thing going for Mexican sycamore, it's not a perfect tree either. It's not as long live, but, you know, 50, 60 years, probably going to do most of us uh, all we need. And it just happens to be the fastest growing good, good quality shade tree out there. Got it. Listen, thank you very much. And I do appreciate your show too. Well, I appreciate your call this morning. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and a happy St. Patty's Day tomorrow. You sound like the kind of guy that'd get out and celebrate. <laughs> we'll just leave it right there i know a lot of people are going to be drinking a lot of green beer and things like that tomorrow but hey st patrick's day is is definitely a good holiday all right let's get back to gardening it's going to be linda and chris and kim and linda's up first good morning linda hi um you just got through talking about uh the phloem going down with the nutrients mm-hmm. outside the bar just inside the bark right does the water flow up through the center of the tree yeah it's called it's called xylem tissue is the center of the tree and that's what takes water from the root system to the top of the tree uh it's an interesting thing it moves by something we call osmotic pressure xylem cells are actually dead tissue they don't even have nuclei in them but uh yeah that is the standard trunk structure on a woody stem tree xylem in the middle phloem outside of that there's a layer called the cambium in between those two that makes new cells of both xylem and phloem and then you've got your bark around beyond that Okay, because I always wonder, they say, oh, you cut out the middle of the tree, it's dead, it doesn't do anything, but you're losing your water supply system when you cut But, you that. know, it's it, that's a real interesting point, and that's a point David addressed in his lecture last week, that the tree has way more xylem than it needs, and if you've got a hollow tree, but you have as much as four inches left all the way around let's say you have a tree that's 20 inches in diameter with a big hole down the middle of it if that outer layer is four inches thick the tree has everything it needs and it's also structurally just almost a hundred percent as strong as a tree with no hole in the middle of it whatsoever and uh this is based on some really good research so uh i've learned a lot dealing with good arborist and i just do my best to share it with you when i can Got another question here. Uh, you said orchids, uh, uh, substrate for them to grow on charcoal and bark, tree bark? Many orchids, orchids are the largest family of flowering plants in the world, so it's very hard to generalize because there are so many different oh. kinds. But the orchids, most of the orchids that we grow, 
uh, for decorative purposes are in nature epiphytes, meaning that they grow up on trees or sometimes the lithophytes grow up on rocks. But all the ones that are used to growing above the ground, I grow them in a mixture of charcoal and bark, and I think that's the very best thing. Now, there are a handful of orchids that are commercially grown, like paphiopetalums or lady slippers and cymbidiums that are in nature terrestrial. They normally grow in the soil. I grow those in a mixture of core, compost, and uh, a little bit of old bark in there. But most all the orchids, certainly the orchids that you find at the grocery stores and things like that, uh, they will be very happy in that uh, charcoal and bark mix. What is the point of the charcoal? What does it do? It Charcoal is uh, a great purifying agent, and as things start to break down and decay, both old roots and as the bark begins to decay, charcoal takes many of the toxins out. That's why charcoal is used as a filter in fish tanks, is used as a filter in many different uh, types of uh, air conditioners and things like that. But the charcoal is there to absorb primarily nitrogenous waste products now in nature there wouldn't be charcoal is it because they're growing up on trees and that stuff gets washed you're exactly away? right you're exactly right but uh and you know you can grow them that way you can mount them on a slab of wood some people mount them on a slab of cork some people will mount them on a slab of tree fern and many orchids will grow beautifully that way but you've got to be home to spray them down with water two or three times a day because uh, uh, that's the thing. In nature, many of these things live in the cloud forest or they live in areas. Uh, they either live in areas which have very regular moisture or else they have developed these big, thick structures called pseudobulbs, which are designed by nature to help the plant get through the drought period. So um, they're a little bit more trouble and certainly no commercial grower is going to invest the time and effort to grow these things on slab. It's much easier to grow them in pots. And so that's the way most of us do it. But uh, come to the Orchid Show next week uh, down at the Garden Center, and uh, you'll see plants growing both ways, and you'll have a lot of people you can ask any interesting question that comes up about orchids. Pseudomulch? What's pseudomulch? Pseudomulch. Oh, pseudomulch. Pseudomulch, sorry. Oh, cedar. Cedar. I didn't hear what you said. Cedar mulch is what it sounds like. Pseudo mulch, pseudo mold. I don't know what you're talking about. Mm, I'm, okay, I'm down here in Divine. We haven't had a drop of useful rain in months. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty much the same way in the hill country. But uh, no, in for growing the terrestrial orchids, uh, there's something called core, C O I R, that mixed with some good compost, mixed with some of the uh, fine bark. That's the mix we make for growing lady slipper orchids, paphiopetalums, and um, and the cymbidiums. But your cattleyas, your phalaenopsis, uh, your oncidiums, your epidendrums, most all of those, that mix of charcoal and bark is all you need. Okay, sorry to ask such technical questions. Not a problem. I I enjoy talking about it. I, I try to generalize for most people, but if you've got an, a question that will help you, if it's something I'm familiar with, I'll share every bit of knowledge I can with you. Thanks so much. Enjoy your show. I appreciate it, Linda. Thank you. I probably enjoy your calls. Chris is up next. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Bob, and everybody else. Good morning. Uh Two questions, well, not questions, but uh, insights. Several years ago, you talked about a Mexican live oak planting it 
And I think it was Edder who actually said, plant it on top of the ground, which I did. Mm-hmm. So it's a five-year-old, was one-inch trunk, bought five years ago. Now it's almost 50 feet, mm-hmm. 45 feet around, and doing absolutely great. Yeah. Number two, I, I've called a number of times. I have this huge, giant live oak that was buried four feet deep. Uh-huh. Well, four and a half feet now. I finally exposed the roots. <laughs> And it's now doing really good. I had a bunch of ball moss. A lot of that's starting to fall off. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, for your listeners, that's one way of doing it if you expose that uh, tree root and all that. <laughs> well, unfortunately, uh, some of the ball moss falling off is uh, that's just ball moss dying and getting blown loose by the wind. So uh, ball moss is not a parasite, so it may or may oh, not help, but uh, it certainly helps. But someone called one time about that. Yeah. And so I just let him know, how do I get rid of it? Well, when you expose the root and all that, the tree gets really healthy. <laughs> it tends to go. Uh, potatoes, planted potatoes. Uh-huh. Uh, what, three inches, four inches deep after you cut all the eyes out? Not all, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, after you cut them up to the appropriate size. I probably plant them an inch deep. You can plant them deeper if oh, you want to. And but, then you pile stuff on top as they recommend or not. You know, I've done it both ways, and I've not seen a lot of difference. They call that banking when they kind of mound the soil up around yeah. them. Um, but uh, I've tried it both ways, and I get plenty of potatoes, whether I take the time to bank the soil up around them or not. But the soil in my garden is fairly loose. Po- yeah, I did fall potatoes, and uh-huh. then I was, you know, dug some of them and all that, and I was planting yesterday some more, and all of a sudden I find a bunch of the potatoes yeah. underneath the ground already. Right. You know, from last fall. Yeah. It's like, okay, where do you all come from? <laughs> I got you all. Well, Harvest some of them and enjoy them. That's what I'm doing. Uh, The last thing is uh, I have a whole bank of roses that I use as a windbreak or something else, but it's also where the chickens love to sit under and poop under. Sure. So uh, other than two feet above where nothing grows below that (laughs) because of the chickens, uh, all the poop, all that other stuff is perfectly good. I, I know it's good for the roses, but... What other supplements should I use? Um, if your roses are doing well, don't do a thing. If you don't have any, Good. if your roses are doing fine, I see no reason to do anything else, Chris. Listen, i got to get a break out of the way here, and then we'll be visiting with Kim and Celeste. All right, let's get back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Looks like it's going to be Kim and Celeste and Janie, and Kim is up first. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. Um, I have a uh, small kumquat tree that I think, looking at photos, it has a zinc deficiency. What can I use to help it? I've never seen a zinc deficiency in, in kumquats. I I guess it's possible. I think it's more likely iron. Um, okay. Uh, so are the veins green and the rest of the leaf yellow? It's yellow. Okay. Well, I'll tell you the most common thing I see in citrus when it's yellowing, it's just it's gotten too dry at some point. But if the problem is iron or zinc or magnesium or any of those other metallic elements, just get a little bit of, uh, I still like ladybugs, uh, what they call magic sand, and a lot of nurseries still have that. If you don't find that, Carl Poole makes a green sand product called Jersey Green Sand, 
And uh, then you can buy ordinary green sand in several different uh, brand names. And uh, uh, that should totally correct the problem. But, you know, uh, many of the fertilizers, uh, the people actually add some green sand to them. So um, what what is your basic fertilizer that you're using uh, on your kumquat? I just use compost. Okay, you need to be using a good basic fertilizer. It might be Espoma, it might be Medina, um, you might be Nature's Creation. All those folks make good fertilizers that have all the micronutrients you use in there. Compost, unless that compost were made from some sort of tissue that had a lot of iron or zinc in it, that is not alone that's probably not all the fertilizer that's sort of the vitamins but it doesn't give you your basic nutrients so at least every two or three months i'd be putting a good basic fertilizer on it and i think that problem will go away without having to buy a supplement and what should be the number on the fertilizer don't even pay any attention to numbers numbers are totally meaningless in today's world because um many of your higher numbered fertilizers the fertilizer in in what we call an anion form which means it doesn't bind to the soil only about 10 percent of it actually goes to the plant so it might say 20 percent it might have a 20 for a first number and yet your plant's actually only getting two percent where a good organic product most of the nutrient is in a form we call a cation which binds to the soil and the plants get a hundred percent of it and if it has the number four then your plants are getting all 4%. It's a little confusing. It's a little easier to explain on a blackboard, but um, your plants get more nutrient from a 4% nitrogen organic fertilizer than they get from a 20% nitrogen uh, synthetic fertilizer. Well, like I have some happy frog, which is a a tomato and vegetable, which is a 7.45, and should I be looking for... Some other combination? No, Happy Happy Frog is uh, a good organic product, and that would be excellent for your citrus. Okay, great. Thank you. You're sure welcome. Thank you. That's the thing about many of these products. Uh, Many companies will make fertilizers, and then they'll make it sound like, oh, you can only use it on roses, or you can only use it on tomatoes or whatever. These products are great for just about anything you put them on. Maybe they put something a little extra special in. Maybe they put some extra magnesium for the roses. But uh, <laughs> it's they're not limited to just one specific plant. And no, on uh, on her kumquat, that, that tomato and vegetable food is going to work just fine. Uh, my next caller is Celeste. Good morning, Celeste. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How about yourself? Uh, doing fine, thank you. Good. My question is about daylilies. Uh-huh. Um, I just really love them, and I wanted to start a little daylily bed, and I know they take sun, right? Yes, they need a fair amount of, they, they need as much sun as you can give them to really bloom well. Right, okay, so I have a spot in my backyard where I think I want to do that, and um, I just didn't know if uh, it how I should best prepare the soil or any tips you can give me about what they might need to really bloom um i mean i know they only open one day well no that's not really true i'll i'll, I'll tell you a little bit about soil preparation then i'll tell you about daylily specifically but oh good any any good soil 
you want to have plenty of uh, organic material in the soil, and good compost is probably the single best place to do to get that. Now, if you want to hold moisture a little bit better, you can add some lava sand. It's a permanent addition. It has what we call a high cation exchange potential, and it helps hold a lot of moisture in the soil. Um, If you want to um, add... There's just so many different things. There are products like uh, zeolite. There are products like azomite, all these uh, uh, things that if you have and you want to add, you certainly can. I think adding a little green sand or magic sand is a good thing to do. And um, uh, But beyond that, uh, just any good garden soil uh, is is going to be fine for growing your daylilies. But here's the thing about daylilies. There are basically three types of daylilies, and you have what we call the deciduous ones that always freeze back. You have what they call the evergreen ones, which usually have foliage year-round, and then you have what we call the semi-evergreens that are sort of halfway in between. The ones that do absolutely the best in this area are the evergreens, and some of the semi-evergreens uh, will do well as well. But a lot of these really fancy daylily varieties, these things you see on the Internet, the things you see in the you know perennial catalogs and things like that, they are varieties that take a much colder climate to do well. So it's not just how you prepare the soil. It's the varieties of daylilies that you choose. And if you stick with the evergreens and some of the semi-evergreens, that's going to be one of the biggest steps in being successful with uh, with your daylily, Celeste. Okay, um, and and I, I've seen some daylily beds where they're really tall, uh-huh. and then but most of the time I, I thought they were short. It all depends on the variety. Uh, there are a number, just like they're re-blooming iris, there are a number of new daylily varieties out there which bloom more than once during the season. Uh, Stella de Oro and many of its uh, hybrids are some of the daylilies that are rebloomers, and most all the rebloomers that I have seen are shorter statured plants. Most of the ones that make the taller plants, you get that one bloom period in the spring. And I think the day, you know, hibiscus only lasts for one day, but daylilies usually three or four or five days. The cooler the weather is, the longer the blooms will last. But uh, most of your taller daylilies, you're going to get that one spring bloom, and that's going to be it. But they're good for all summer, and especially like July and August, right? Uh, the plants will be pretty, and they will do very well, but you're probably not going to get more flowers in August and uh, July and August unless you go with things like your Stella de Oro that are reblooming types that can bloom more than once during the season. Okay. Um, back to the sand. Was lava sand and magic sand two different things I yes. should do, or just one or the other? No, they're, they're two different things. Lava sand is basically ground-up lava, and it is, uh, again, there, there are a lot of things it does, but probably the, the principal thing is they ho- help with holding moisture in the soil. Your green sands or magic sand, this is a different sand, comes from ancient seabeds and lake floors that is very high in metallic elements like iron and zinc. And uh, green sand is probably good for a year or two, but it's something that you will reapply periodically. Lava sand is going to be there for the next thousand years. Okay. All right. Well, good information. I'll um, get started. Well, and do look around. Uh, we have a daylily society, actually, in San Antonio, the meet down at the Garden Center. 
and uh, these people are really purists. But uh, just keep in mind that the variety is very important. Uh, check your good nurseries around and be real careful of those pretty little catalogs that come in the mailbox because most of the varieties you find in there probably are not going to be real good for this area. But you have all the uh, the evergreen and semi-evergreen. We do later in the season. It's a little bit early yet. I think Fanix does a pretty good, good job of carrying them. But, uh, uh, yes, they are certainly things that where they're available, we try to find them. This, this is a weird year in the nursery business, not to tell you, you know, a lot about what's going on in the world of the nurserymen, but with the lack of sun this spring, the growers are behind. Things that we normally would be getting in big supplies by the end of February simply aren't going to be ready till the middle or end of March. I guess this is the middle of March now, Ides of March yesterday, but uh, um, most nurseries are not quite as well stocked as we normally are this time of year just because the lack of sun, things aren't growing quite as quickly, but they will be out there. You get your beds ready, and then we'll help you find what you're looking for. Okay, great. Well, thank you a lot, and you have a great day. You do the same, Celeste. Appreciate the call. Thank you. Bye. All right, back to gardening. I think we have just about the right amount of time to talk to Janie. Good morning, Janie. Good morning. Good morning. How can I help today? Uh, Okay, I have a a lagust, no, a... um, Episcoporium, Episcoporium? Uh, shrub, uh-huh. yeah, uh-huh. in, in uh, two actually two of them in my front uh, in front of my house, and the leaves are turning yellow. Okay, and 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 there's in one spot on the uh, side, it's on the it's almost dead. Okay, you know, the, the the branches. So anyway, what is it lacking, or is it? Well, a little bit of yellowing is normal at this time of year. I've got a pittosporum outside my back door. It's about 15 feet wide and about 12 feet tall and there are there are a lot of yellow leaves how does the new growth are you seeing any new growth coming out on the plant no no Uh, well it's it's gotten pretty big uh it probably needs to be cut back some but i don't think it's really coming out a whole lot okay Uh, I, i took a picture of it i could probably send you a picture of it you can. I I don't think that's really necessary. I would give it some of the same fertilizer that you're going to put on your grass. Any of the good organic products, uh, Medina Nature's mm-hmm. Creation, uh, any of those good ones will benefit your pittosporum as well. Pittosporums now are like trees, and we talk so much about the importance of at the bottom of that plant, the root flare needs to be exposed. You don't want to have soil piled up around the trunk, or that can lead to those, you know, big dead areas in the plant. So somebody really needs to get down, and there's just not an easy way to do it, get down on your hands and knees and perhaps, you know, pull the soil away from the main trunk of the plant until you find those roots flaring out, you know, going out sideways from the bottom of the plant. Green pittosporum has a very long life. This one behind my back door, I'm guessing, has probably been there 80 years or so. And the bottom of that plant, the trunk is maybe 18 inches in diameter. So they can live a long, long time. Now, I see some yellow leaves uh, just from lack of water. 
and we are dry. I mean, this little rain we had this past week is the first time we've had more than about a tenth of an inch of rain at one time, and I've still got cracks in my yard. You still get down more than half an inch deep, and that soil's just dry, dry, dry. So give your big pittosporum a very, very thorough watering. Give it, you know, again, just a good basic organic fertilizer you'll be putting on your grass. But uh, when you're able or have somebody, you know, do this for you, get down and look at the base of the plant. If it looks like a fence post sticking up out of the ground, it's buried, and you've got to pull the soil back away from the trunk of the plant down to where you see those roots flaring out, or ultimately it will die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's been there about 45 years. Yeah. Uh, so, and I didn't fertilize. I didn't get. I didn't get a chance to fertilize in the fall. Just do it now. I usually, yeah. Well, yeah, I had planned on it, and so I didn't know if it needed maybe some other nutrient no. other than just the fertilizer. No. If you're using uh, a good organic fertilizer, it's got everything you need in there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'll try that because uh, I sure hate to lose it. Oh yeah, <laughs> I I think you'll be fine. But give it a thorough watering, a little fertilizing, and it should look lots 